All right, we can turn over to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to continue in our little mini-series here, the battle, the believer's battle with sin. And even though we're, we're saved, we've been justified, we're made righteous, been transformed, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, there's still this thing called sin that we deal with, that we struggle with. And so we want to continue to see what Paul tells us here in the Word in Romans chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 14 to 25. So let me go ahead and read that for us, and then we'll uh, continue on in our study of, of that text of Scripture. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law or principle That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So we looked at last week kind of an introductory uh, lesson on this whole section. And we talked about how it's kind of controversial, but in the end, basically, we said that we believe that the person here that is speaking, first of all, it's Paul, because he says, I, I, me, me, over and over in the context. And then secondly, we believe that it's Paul as a mature believer, as someone who has uh, grown in his relationship with Christ, and that he's come to understand his own inability to do the things that God desires him to do. In other words, he is realistic with the issue of sin in his life. He doesn't try to run from it. He doesn't try to hide it. He just says, man, the things that I shouldn't be doing, that's what I'm doing. And there's a lot of people that say, well, this is talking about a carnal Christian. This is talking about this. This is talking about that. No, it's talking about Paul, and it's talking about him pretty much as a mature believer. Um, A lot of immature believers would not come to that conclusion. Remember back when you were first saved. You thought you could conquer the world, save the world. You know, you thought you'd never sin again, probably. Oh, boy, I'm filled with the Spirit, and I'm good to go. Until the first time you sinned. (laughs) Then you realize, well, how does this work? Um, You know, we've been teaching in Romans 6 and, and 7 even how we're not any longer under the bondage of sin. For the first time when we're converted, we can 
do what is right in God's eyes. Before that, we couldn't. Without the Spirit of God, we can't do anything that pleases God. And so it's only through Christ and His transformation of us, His change, He changes our very nature from one that is evil, from one that is wicked, to one that is righteous. And it's only because the righteousness of Christ that it even takes place. And so we come to this section, and last week we we mentioned that he basically says three times he goes through this cycle. And he basically makes a a, a general statement. Uh, He has three outcries with this struggle with sin. It's almost like he's at his wit's end. He's like, man, I don't know why this keeps happening. And he just keeps on repeating it over and over and over again. And so, if you look at that, you can see that, first of all, what's he do? He states, basically, the the problem, and then he gives a description of what's happening, and then he goes on, and he talks about how that, uh, he, he talks about, basically, the whole process of the source of this struggle, where it comes from. And so, he does that in verses Uh, 14 to 17, and then he does it again in verses 18 to 20, and then he does it again in verses 21 to 24, and then he kind of makes a summary statement at the end that we'll go over. But it's so important for us to understand that Paul here is obviously trying to get something across to us because he repeats over and over and over again the same thing. And you say, well, what's the controversy here with this passage? And you can get the message from last week, and we talked about this. But the idea that this wretched man that's crying out here, is this really Paul? And we believe it is for obvious reasons. He wrote the book. He's using uh, I and me. And it's pretty clear that that's who is speaking. And so we don't want to go over that again. But it's important that we understand that that's who uh, this, this is all about. And we talked a little bit about, well, how do we know it's a Christian? Maybe it's somebody, maybe Paul's referring to himself before he came to Christ. And we talked about last week the description of a Christian. If you want to describe a Christian, first of all, it's somebody who pursues God. Uh, Romans 7.22 says, I delight in the law of God. Paul was delighting in that. He's pursuing God. Um, and, and so it, it's, a non-believer wouldn't say things like that. A non-believer wouldn't be pursuing God. The Bible says that no man seeks after God. All have gone astray. And then the second aspect of that Christianity, if someone's a Christian, then they'll hate sin. And in verse 15, he talks about doing what I hate. You know, I keep doing it. I don't know why. Um, and we referenced Jeremiah, it should have been 17.9, not 7.9, but 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so he continues to kind of drive this home. And so we we really believe that this is Paul as a mature believer. And clearly he is, is making his point over and over and over again. And we talked about sometimes when we are faced with this struggle with sin in america we like to deal with it in one of three ways we either come up with a slick little formula some little book or something somebody wrote and think oh i gotta just do this or pray this prayer and i won't have any more sin well that's not going to work or a new experience maybe you think somehow you got to get more of the spirit or whatever well my bible tells me that when you get saved you got everything you're going to get period you're complete in christ he's given you everything And then the third way, you don't have to go looking after a new formula or a new experience, but some people just avoid it. They get involved. 
they have sin in their life and they say, well, you know, maybe if I just stay busy somehow, that will uh, go away. And so they don't address it. And we also gave a list of the consequences of sin and how that, you know, I don't think as Christians we would do this uh, purposely. I don't think we wake up in the morning saying, how can I, as a believer, a born-again believer, how can I sin today to, to really anger God or to test his grace or to whatever? I, I, we don't do that. That's not something a normal person, a Christian, someone who is in Christ would do. No, we try to find out ways that we don't sin. We look for the way out of the temptation. But we come to this passage here in verses 14 to 25, and Paul is continuing to discuss, really, the law. That's why in in verse 14, he starts off with the word for, for we know. In other words, he's not introducing anything new. He's just continuing the thought. And this whole section deals with the law, sin, and death. And so we've been looking at this this passage, and the first first outcry here is what we want to get to today. So if you missed last week's message, you need to get that and go on the web or whatever and listen to that, and that'll give you all the background, but we're not going to spend our time there this morning. We're just going to dive right in with verses 14 to 17. And the first thing he does, and this is cyclical, like he says, he does this three times, and he does it every time. The first time in verse 14, he states the problem. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Um, the, The ESV uh, says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. That word carnal, the word flesh, that's what it means. It, it means our, our humanness, okay? And uh, he, he's basically telling us here that he's not coming up with something new about the law. He loves the law. He, he told us that all the way back in, in uh, chapter 6, chapter 7. But it's also a burden, because he realized that the law of God is good, but the law of God wasn't given to us for what he thought it was. He thought somehow if he could keep the law that he would get salvation. And that's how most people think. You know, they join a church and say, tell me what I, what I have to do. You know, do I, do I, what do I do? <laughs> and they want to do all this stuff. And it's like, wait, you just got to chill out and you got to figure out, you know what, there's nothing you can do to gain your own salvation. If there was, that would be a work salvation. We don't believe in that. We don't believe the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that we're saved by what? Grace. It's a free gift. And so he states this problem here, and here's where a lot of people get kind of tripped up there in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. He's admitting his own sinfulness here. When he says the law is spiritual, that just means, you know, the law is from God. The law isn't bad. Because his hearers, the people who he's writing to, he just got done saying that the law can't save you. The law is this, the law is that. And and he says it's good, but it's not going to do anything for you other than show you your own sinfulness. And so when he comes to this point, he wants to make sure that his readers and his listeners hear him, that he's not condemning the law. He's just saying you have to understand the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show us our own sinfulness. And so he affirms it's from God. It's a spiritual law. It's not bad. And then he says, I am fleshly or I am carnal. 
And some people say, well, how could a Christian say that? Because we just got done understanding and and learning from Paul that when you become a Christian, what happens to the old man? The old man dies. The old man's buried. The old man's gone. You know, you're not walking around with two natures. You're not walking around with, well, who am I going to listen to today? The good or the bad or the ugly? I mean, it doesn't work that way. Um, That's ridiculous. When you are saved, God puts his spirit within you, and for the first time, you become alive to the things of God. And as you become alive to the things of God, you begin to do things that for the first time in your life are actually pleasing to him. Whereas before, outside of Christ, you could have done whatever. You could have feed all the homeless in Redwood City. That's not going to be pleasing to him outside of Christ. I'm sure they would like it. But that's not going to do anything for you between you and God. Because we don't believe in a work salvation. Matter of fact, the Bible says just the opposite, that our works are like what? Filthy rags. There's something to be discarded. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of religion, even within Christianity, that still holds on to this. That somehow, by you coming and warming a pew, sitting in a seat every Sunday, you're, you're earning brownie points with God. That can't be furthest, farthest from the truth. You know, we should be here on a Sunday morning because, as Emmanuel said earlier, we want to grow. We want to grow in our relationship with Christ. We want to be edified with spiritual things. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, out there in the world, six days a week you're getting beat up all over the place. It's good to come and fellowship with the saints. It's good to hear the Word of God taught. It's good to apply it to your life. It's good to sing songs of praise to our God, our Creator, our Savior. That builds us up. And I don't know about you, but you read the newspaper, I mean, it's, it's a nasty place out there. The sinful, dying world is not a place that you can go and be built up in your spirit. And the question always goes through my head, how do people do this with just, you know, Sunday going to meet in church kind of deal? You know, they punch the card once a week. Man, how, how do you function? How, how do you survive spiritually day to day throughout the week? I mean, I thank God that, you know, we have a, unfortunately, we have a small group of people, but we have a group of people that, you know, when I am away or something like that, and I'll tell them, you know, I might not have Wednesday night Bibles today. Oh, really? You know, I don't see them going, oh, praise God, you know, we get a week off. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm thinking that, but, you know, but they're not thinking that. And it's my flesh that comes out. But man, when you're with God's people, you know what? You're built up. You're, you're, you're ministered to. That's something that should just, it's a no-brainer. And that's why the Bible says, hey, don't you forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It doesn't say on Sundays. And I know this is kind of a touchy thing because we got busy schedules. We all got stuff on our plate. But it's something that the Bible says. If you're interested in being built up, if you're interested in being growing in your relationship with Christ, then you know what? You're going to make that a priority. Because you know what? We are fleshly. We're still here in our humanness. We're still trying to deal with sin on a daily basis. 
And Paul delights in God's law, but he also confesses, you know what? There's kind of this barrier that prevents me from always obeying God's law. And what's the barrier? He states the problem. It's his flesh. It's this body. It's this human nature. Now, Romans 7, 5 makes it clear that Christians cannot be considered as being in the flesh. Because we're not in the flesh any longer as believers. Verse 5 of Romans 7, For while we were living in the flesh, notice it's past tense, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Whenever you see the words, in the flesh, please know that it's talking about those who are unsaved. Because in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8, look at what it says there. Paul says to his Christian audience there, those who are in the flesh can what? Cannot please God. And then he says, wait a minute, you, however, are not in the flesh. But you are what? In the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life because of righteousness. See, we have to be reminded that we are still caught up in this body. That sin will be an issue till the day we die or Christ returns. Unless you figure out somehow how to get your spirit out of this body and just live in the spirit or something. I don't know. But the word, the phrase, always in the flesh refers to those who are unregenerate. Those who are not saved. Now hear me. Just because Christians are not in the flesh, please understand the flesh is still in us. We're still here. We can't escape it. We're no longer held captive to it, the Bible says. We don't have to do what the flesh tells us to do any longer. We have an option now. God provides a way out of temptations. But we can still act fleshly. We can still act carnal. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says in verses 1 and 3, he says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual, but as fleshly, as carnal, even as babes in Christ. For you are yet fleshly, you're yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not fleshly? Are you not carnal? Walk as mere men? See, he really called them to task over that because he said, you know what? You're not acting like a Christian. You're not acting like someone who's filled with the Spirit of God. You're not acting in a way that honors Christ. You're acting in a way that is sinful, that is given over to the flesh. That's why here in this text he says, Verses 18 there and 25, he says, you know, I know that in, in my flesh, in this being of me, who I am, fleshly, dwells no good thing. He said, with my mind, 
I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. He admits that he's still dealing with sin. He's admitting that he's still dealing with his flesh. It's basically a term that means our humanness. You know, when we go to glory, we're no longer going to be human. We're going to be supernatural. We're going to be glorified beings. We're going to have a glorified body. We'll no longer have this sinful humanness to deal with. When Paul said in Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, he implied that it doesn't reign in the believer's renewed mind. He didn't say let sin reign in your mortal mind. He didn't say that. He said in your body. When a believer dies, he immediately goes to be in the presence of the Lord. And the only thing that keeps us out of there is our flesh. If you could shed this body, you could be in the presence of the Lord. Because as a Christian, you're totally righteous. You are a mirror of Christ in every way. We're we're brought together with him. But because of our humanness, we're still stuck here in this sinful world. I mean, just don't get hung up on the idea that, you know, this this carnal or this flesh. It's basically, you're, you're saying the same thing. You're just saying that you're a sinner. That's what you're saying. And Paul's saying that. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you know what? There's sometimes I know what to do and I don't do it. That's sin. It's fleshly, it's carnal. You know, when we get angry or when we get frustrated or whatever, what happens? We sin. I mean, what would you think if I said, you know, brothers and sisters, I no longer are given to sin. I am perfect in every way. I mean, you'd probably get your stones ready, right? I mean, they'd be taking me out back and, you know, I wouldn't be here anymore. Why? Because the Bible doesn't say that. And it's not realistic. Even if you take the Bible and set it aside, all you have to do is follow me around for a couple minutes. And you'll say, oh, well, wait a minute. What was that? That was a sin. No, all you got to do is talk to my wife. She'll tell you all kinds of sins, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Christians are not. And we've heard this and it becomes kind of trite, but are not perfect, but they're what? They're forgiven. All right? We're, we're, we're called to be perfect as the Father is perfect. And spiritually, we are before God because Christ has clothed us in his righteousness. But that's positionally. But when you get to practicality, I mean, you know, there's some days I wake up, I'm just going, well, this is not going to be a good day, you know? Why? Because this flesh, because the sin, just things are creeping up and you feel it coming. And then he says there in verse 14, he says, I am sold under sin. Verse 23 says another, says it again. If you jump down there, he says, I see another law of my members warring, members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Wow. 
You know, people read that and say, a Christian wouldn't be that. A Christian wouldn't sell themselves into sin. What does that mean? Because we've been delivered from sin, right? Well, the phrase there, sold under sin, literally means this. Having been sold under the sin. That puts emphasis on the sin principle. In other words, the product of fallen man. And the product of fallen man continues to be fallen even in our fleshly bodies. So the principle of sin is something we have to deal with on a daily basis. Until we shed this body. Until we leave this earth. It's not talking about individual sins that you commit. It's just saying very generally, you know what? You're given to sin. So being sold under sin doesn't mean that Paul actively committed himself and sold himself to sin. That's not what it's saying. Think about it. Every time you sin, you lose the battle with sin. Every time you sin, you lose the battle with sin. You have become, in a way, captive to sin. Even though you don't have to. See, as a non-believer, you don't have any choice. But as a believer, you have a choice. You can follow the flesh, the world, sin, the devil. Or you can follow God, his spirit, his promptings, and do what's right. And it says there this law or principle of sin, it actually resides in our bodily members in verse 23. What's that mean? It includes our physical, emotional, intellectual, volitional parts of man. Let me tell you, back in Psalm 51, verse 5, David said this, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a Christian. Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 5 says, the prophet says this, after having a vision of God, he says, woe is me. Kind of like wretched man that I am. He says, woe is me, I am undone. In other words, I am really messed up here. Something's got me really on the edge. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. See, all the prophet could see against the glorious revelation of a holy God to him was his own sin. And you'll see that in your Christian walk, depending on where you're at in your growth. You know, when you first get saved, man, you're just, thank God, God paid for all these sins and I feel clean, man. I am powerful. I am in Christ. I am ready to conquer the world. And you talk to that same believer six weeks later, they're going, I got some struggles, man. You know, some of these sins are creeping back. What do I do? Help me, please. And all of a sudden there's this battle going on. And we say, welcome to the Christian walk. (laughs) It's a war. A daily war. And it will not stop. It's not going to be over until we go to see Christ or he comes to see us and we shed this body. That's why he was able to tell his 
disciples, hey, you know, you think I got it bad. You wait. Wait till they get a hold of you. You're going to have trials. You're going to have persecutions. It's going to be a struggle. He didn't say, oh, just come to me. And you know what? You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You won't deal with any more sin. Boy, you'll just walk on water. Everything will be great. No, he never said that. Unfortunately, that's what some of the prosperity teachers are saying to people today. Come to Jesus and you won't have any problems. As a matter of fact, if you have a problem, there's something wrong with you. There must be a spiritual problem there. We need to address that. It's ridiculous. The name it and claim it mentality has really done a lot of harm for the cause of Christ. But he says here that he is, you know, this... this undone you just kind of feel it in his in the way he says it here that the law is spiritual but i am unspiritual and you know what i'm i'm basically sold to the principle of sin it's not going to go away one commentator said this the more seriously a christian strives to live from grace and to submit to the discipline of the gospel the more sensitive he becomes to the fact that even his best acts and activities are disfigured by the egotism which is still powerful within. And no less evil because it is often more subtly disguised than formally. You know, the, the, the sinful presence of the flesh is there all the time. And it's, it's so bad that that's why we have to be redeemed. We have to be saved. We have to be freed from it. But you know what? In this life, sin still kind of hangs on to some degree. Well, in verse 15, he not only states the problem, verse 14, but he moves on. He talks about this conflict. He says in verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. <clears throat> Been there, done that. <laughs> How about you? You ever do something that was just so stupid you're thinking, What in the world was I thinking? For I don't even understand my own actions, he says, verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. See, a self-righteous person, someone who's legalistic and self-righteous, they think they're just above everybody else, they actually deceive themselves into thinking somehow that equates to morality. But see, but a spirit who's led by a Christian who's led by the Spirit of God doesn't see it that way. They're, they're honest. They're, they're, they're saying, man, I'm doing some things I don't want to do. That word where he says there, that which I, uh, I, for I do not understand my own actions, understand or know why I do these things, it implies an intimate love. Not only does Paul say that he does not love what he ends up doing, but also he hates doing it. (laughs) That's the idea. His failure to do what he desires to do and his practice of doing what he hates reflects that turmoil, that struggle with sin. He was frustrated with his own sinful flesh. Now, please understand, Paul's not saying here, oh, evil just has me pinned down and it wins all the time. He's not saying that. And no Christian should ever say that. 
Because in Christ we have victory, right? We have the Spirit of God. We have the ability to live by the Spirit, to confess our sin and move on. We don't need to be under the thumb of the enemy when we do slip up. We need to understand who we are in Christ. So it's not that he's saying, oh, evil just wins all the time. But he's saying, you know what? I want to be perfect as my Father's perfect in heaven because that's what Christ said. And every time I feel like I'm almost there, something slips up. A sin comes back. And I can't seem to keep this law of God perfectly. I mean, I hope you can identify with that frustration. I hope, you know, you can identify this next week when you sin. You know, that, that's a frustration, man. And I'm doing something. I know it's not honoring Christ. I know it's not honoring God. I know that it's sinful. I need to, you know, confess this and get it behind me and move on. You don't just do that once. It's over and over and over and over until we go to be with the Lord. That's why our salvation is so incredible. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was God, thank God I'm not, but if I was, you know, I could see forgiving people for all their sins up to this point. Okay, Jesus died for all that. I'd kind of maybe make it a little contest or something from here to there to see who actually gets into heaven. In other words, you all start with a clean slate, you know, but, but, you know, okay, now from here on, you have to, you know, if you slip up once, well, maybe I'll let you in, but, you know, other than that. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous illustration, but it kind of points out the patience and the grace that God has extended to us. I mean, do you ever think that God gets just flat out tired of us sinning day after day? Oh, Lord, sorry, I blew it again. Oh, Lord, sorry, I blew it again. Do you ever feel like you're on your knees and you think God's up there going, you know, I'm tired of this. Because of who we are in Christ, beloved. That forgiveness never ends. Now, there's indications in Scripture for believers that, you know what, if you're you're just willfully, and you're a Christian, and you're willfully living in sin, knowingly, and you continue to do it willfully, God's not beyond just kind of taking you out. Tapping you on your shoulder and saying, you know what? You're being such a poor salesman down there. I just got to call you home now, brother. Come on. You're just coming home. That's happened to people. Um, you know, you wonder, though, about the idea of, of God's grace and his, his willingness to put up with our doing the thing that we hate over and over and over again, because that's where the conflict is. That's the turmoil. It's a frustration. And God is always gracious with us. That grace never runs out. Someone said this, the road to spirituality is paved with a sense of your own wretchedness, not your own self-glory. There's a guy uh, with, uh, I think his name's Ty, I can't remember his name, but he's got a, a show called Wretched. And great, great show, Christian show, it's kind of an apologetic kind of thing. But I think, what a, what a good name. Because that really says who.
who we are. Um, we are wretched men and women who need God's grace continually because this conflict is going on continually. Um, I believe the spiritual man, those who know Christ, have a broken, they have a contrite heart. They, they realize that, you know what, I can't be everything that God wants me to be, even in Christ, because i got this flesh. And when you reach that point, you're even more dependent on God. You're more dependent on his spirit. You're not out there walking around thinking, oh, I got this, I got this. No, you're, you're like, God, I need your help every day. Fill me with your spirit every day. Well, he also goes on here in verse 16, 17. He talks about this, the source of the struggle. Why, why does this happen? And he says in verse 16 and 17, he says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What makes a Christian want to carry out God's law? What makes a Christian want to do what is right? I would say it's his new nature, right? It's, it's him being born again. It's God giving him a brand new nature that desires the things of God. And that new nature, according to 1 John 3, 9, does not sin. But when we go against that new nature because of the, the flesh, because of our humanness, it's not the law's problem. Paul's not pointing to the law saying, oh, that bad law, God's law, you know, that's what's making me sin. No. He's saying it's the sin that resides in this human body. And I'm not talking physical body, I'm talking our humanness. You know, we don't want to start to believe that, oh, this body's bad, so we got to, you know, there's people that believe that. And they do bad things to their body. Well, I got news for you. God created your body. You know, his spirit dwells within you. Okay, so we have to take care of our bodies. A Christian will naturally pursue the moral excellence that we find in God's law. It it will naturally happen. You don't have to teach a new believer how to do right. You really don't. I remember growing up as a believer, and I, uh, I didn't have anybody to disciple me after I became a Christian because I went right back to college, a secular college, for a year. I mean, nobody had to come up to me as, a, as, a, as another Christian and say, now, Steve, don't go to those parties anymore. You know, don't do this. Now, here, now you have to do this. You should be going to church. You should be. Nobody had to tell me that. God's, God totally equipped me to do what he wanted me to do. And sometimes I think... In a real way, we do harm to people that so-called make a profession of faith. You know, they raise their hand in the service or they walk down the aisle. They do whatever, jump through whatever hoop you want them to jump through. And then we say, now we have to teach you how to be a Christian. So we put them right in a class and we say, okay, now you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. And, and they learn Christianity and they learn the language. So then, you know, when, when someone asks them the question, you know, are you saved? The first time maybe they say, well, yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, they realize that's not a good answer. 
So then they say, oh yeah, I'm saved. Well, how did you get saved? So so then they begin to put all these pieces of the puzzle together. But they're not saved. They've never been transformed by, they're just learning Christianity. I'm all for discipleship, beloved. I'm all for accountability groups. I'm all for all that stuff. But we have to be careful that we don't use those instead of God's equipping us what he's already given us to hold us accountable. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, I never understood accountability groups. Because I'll just be honest with you, okay? If I'm doing something bad, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) It ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. I don't care who you are. I don't care whatever. It's not going to happen. I'm just not naturally going to sit down with another guy over coffee and say, yeah, you know, last week, boy, all these stops. And I'm, I wouldn't do it. You ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to say, fine. And you say, boy, that's, you know what? I'm just being honest. I'm being honest. That may work for some guys. They may sit down and bear their soul. Okay? For me, I understand that, you know what? My first accountability is to God. He already sees stuff going on in my mind, in my life. My second accountability is to my wife. If that's not already working, then I got problems that I don't think any accountability group is going to help me with because I'm not willing to face my own issues. So don't get me wrong. I think it's good that we get guys together and talk about these things. That's good. But don't put your trust in your meeting with another guy. Because they could lie to you just as soon as you could lie to them and no one would even know the difference. See, that's why in the Bible a lot of times, and even in our our Christian society, we see men who are going along and, and all of a sudden, boy, they have some big failure. And everybody goes, whoa, how could that happen? What do you mean, how could it happen? He's a sinner, just like you're a sinner, like anybody else is a sinner. Unfortunately, he wasn't willing to deal with his sin to the point until it started affecting everybody around him. So you have to be careful. But this this struggle comes from us being in the flesh. It almost sounds like Paul here is, is blaming this. He's not willing to step up to the plate. But you know what? In verse 14, he does basically acknowledge that he's sinful says, I'm in the flesh. I'm sold under sin. I have this principle of sin operating within me. He wants to do the right thing, but he can't. And so he accepts responsibility for his sinful failings. I remember after we got married, we were going through well, actually before we got married, but then afterwards as well, we went through some counseling. But I remember using this phrase. You know, when the counselor would say, you know, Steve, you're just not, you're not in, engaging your, your wife on an emotional or um, a level that, that she needs that engagement. And my answer was always the same. Hey, you know what? This is how God created me. What can I say? Because there's some truth in that, right? I mean, we're all different personalities. I'm never going to be the guy at the party going, hey, look at me. You know, I'm just not that kind of guy. You know, I'm just never going to be that guy. Um, Being that guy's not wrong, but I'm not that guy. 
okay? Um, and so we have to un- feel comfortable in our own sin or our own skin, but we also can't be so comfortable in our own skin that it makes us comfortable in our own sin. You know, just because that's not my personality, that doesn't mean that, you know, after the service I should run to my office and not talk to anybody and, you know, not go to the fellowship hall. Okay, you know, that's just not how God, you know, I'm just not that way. I'm not social, so I'm just going to be antisocial to everybody. And feel justified in that. No, that would be sinful behavior. That would be wrong. All right? And so we have to be reminded of that. That this struggle goes on and on and on till the day we die. And so he's admitting his responsibility for his sin. He's not blaming it on that. But he's just giving us an explanation why this happens. And that's why in verse 17, he says there, It is no more I that does this, but sin that dwells in me. See, this isn't the spiritual side of me doing this. It's sin that is in me that's causing this to happen. That phrase there in the original language in verse 17, it says, now it is no longer I who do it. Um, It means from this point on, something has changed. An unbeliever could never claim a new beginning that marks a permanent change from the past because they don't have that. But here Paul is saying, something changed in my life in this given, in this time. And you know what? Because of that, I'm, I'm free from this, this burden of sin that I don't have to continually sin. But you know what? When I do sin, it's not me that's really even desiring it. As far as my, my spiritual self, it's this flesh. That I'm trapped in. And so when Christ comes into a believer's life, he gives him a new spiritual nature. And the believer can literally say that, you know what? He's not the same person that he used to be. Remember in in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul said that I, the old nature, am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, Not I, but Christ lives what? In me. And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, See, after salvation, sin no longer resides in our innermost self because that's recreated to be like Christ. And yet it finds a dwelling presence in this fleshly body. That's why Paul could say in verse 18, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Well, the second outcry, and he repeats the same thing, and this is going to go a little quicker. He says in verse 18, I know that in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. He states the problem. This is why this happens. He wants to emphasize that it's, it's not this new, incorruptible nature that's failing him, that's failing to obey God's law. But it's the sin that dwells in his flesh. And that's why he admits there's nothing good in his unredeemed humanity. And then in verses 18 to 19, he once again describes the conflict. He says, to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I do, I do not. But the evil which I do not, that I do. 
He's basically saying here, you know what? I can't figure out how to do anything right. He's kind of saying, man, this is, this is a struggle. You know, this, this is something that's, that's a continuous struggle for me. And Paul did a lot of things right. Why is it when you're a Christian, the one thing you tend to focus is on the one thing you do wrong? Isn't that the focus? When we sin, that's our focus. And rightfully so. But I don't think every day we, we just wake up wanting to sin continuously before God. We don't do that. We, we strive not to sin. When you look at someone who's growing as a Christian, the more they grow like Christ, it seems like the more they hate their sin. And the more they're mature enough to at least acknowledge it. And to deal with it. I mean, David was very sensitive to sin, wouldn't you say? I mean, he in the Old Testament, he was very sensitive. He's constantly crying out to God for mercy. In the midst of his sinfulness, he, had, he understood that God wanted a, a, a broken spirit, a, a broken and contrite heart. And that's the kind of struggle that we go through each and every day. And that's the, the conflict that we're all faced with. Well, in verse 20, he talks about the source once again. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's the same thing, basically, he said in verse 17. Like I said, it's very repetitive, this part of Scripture. Although he had a new nature, he fought against sin and he lost. Not lost the whole war. Everything's not over, but this one battle with sin, he lost. Every time we sin, we lose. We lose one of those battles with sin. But ultimately, we know that we're going to win the war. It's a continuous thing. The third outcry, he does the same thing, verse 21. So I I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He uses the word law. They're almost kind of define a principle. In contrast to the law of God, he's saying there's a, there's a law of sin, a principle of sin, a principle of evil. In the original language, it says that the evil lies close at hand. You know, what, what does evil battle? Evil battles every good thought, every good word, every good deed. Whenever we're trying to do good, evil is there to battle us. Evil never says, oh, go ahead and do it. No. It's going to battle us somehow. It's a conflict. And Paul tells us that evil is present within us, creating conflict between our our new nature in Christ and this humanness. dwells here 
He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. What's he mean? In his, in his spiritual nature, in the new, the new Paul, boy, he delights in God's word. All you have to do, we're not going to take time this morning, look through Psalm 119 over and over and over and over again. You see a cry from the psalmist talking about delighting in God's word. He says, in his innermost being or the bottom of his heart, you could translate it that way if you wanted to. He had a deep down love for the law of God. That's what he wants us to understand. But he says, you know what? I see in my members another law, law of sin, waging war against the law of my mind. And what he wants us to understand through this, beloved, is that the sin principle, the, the reason that we have a battle with sin is that sin kind of uses the members of our body, our humanness, to express itself. If you take away this body, if you take away our unredeemed humanness, we don't have an issue with sin. That's why it's going to be a glorious day when we're translated from this place up to there and sin will be no longer part of our lives, period. And that will be for all eternity. And so Paul here is a believer. If he wasn't a believer, the law of his mind would be just as rotten as the next person. So he's speaking of himself as a believer. And in verse 23, he says, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Once again, he speaks of the source. He identifies the source of this problem. Why do we have to deal with sin over and over and over again? Because it resides in our human nature. Sometimes the battle goes in favor of the law of his members and brings him into captivity, it says. But it's important that we understand that, you know, when he says that, that it brings him into captivity. Well, someone who's not saved is already captive by sin. And Paul's clearly saying, no, I'm not captive, but you know what? There are times when I lower, lower the, the standard and I end up sinning. I give in to sin. My humanness gives in to sin. And I struggle. And so we have to be reminded of these things. Because you know what? There's not a person in this room that doesn't deal with sin. Why do we sin? Do we sin because God didn't do a good enough job when he saved us? Is that why we continue to sin? Maybe we sin because he gave us a new nature and it's not really done yet. He's still working on it somehow. Maybe we sin because we're not prepared for heaven yet. We still need to earn our way in. So he left us here to struggle against sin to kind of earn our stripes so one day we could go to heaven. That's not any of those reasons or not the reason why we sin. We sin because sin is present in our humanness. It includes our mind. It includes our emotions. It includes our body. That's why in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Right? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What's he saying? Even though we're still in these physical bodies, we are engaged not necessarily in a physical war, but in a spiritual war. And we have to use spiritual resources to do it. 
Well, at the end of this chapter, he finally gets done with his three outcries. And in verse 24, he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? And he gives us a solution here. But it has to start with the proper evaluation of the sinner. Um, As a Christian, don't ever get to a point in your Christian life where you think that somehow someone's sin is petty. What I mean by that is sometimes I've I've even heard Christians say this to other brothers, mainly, who are dealing with certain things. Well, yeah, I used to deal with that. Let me tell you how I live my life now. And they talk about how they have victory over this sin. And I'm not saying God can't give us victory over sin. Trust me. The key is being at a place where you actually feel comfortable saying that. At a place in your Christian life where you can say, oh yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with that. That doesn't bother me. I've heard guys say, yeah, you know, I can you know, go to the movies and a little nudity. It doesn't bother me. Cussing, it doesn't bother me. This doesn't bother me. That doesn't bother me. Oh, brother, you got that problem? Let me tell you how I dealt with that problem. And it's almost like they're, they're saying, I'm above all that now. I don't, I don't have to deal with that any longer. I got news for you. Till the day you die and you shed this body, you're going to have to deal with sin one way or another. And so why not just admit it? You know, we don't have to lift ourselves up as some spiritual giants. You know, we're not. I mean, let's be real. That's why Paul can say, oh, wretched man that I am. He's admitting who he is. Don't ever feel comfortable in this body, in your Christianity. Because you don't know what's around the bend. You don't know the next temptation that might hit you. And if you're not prepared for it, it could take you down. I don't mean lose your salvation, but I mean you could dishonor Christ. Don't ever think, you know, that you're too mature for that or you're too strong for that or, boy, you'll never deal with that problem again. No, we have to have a proper evaluation of ourselves first. And that's why I love the book when we went through it, The Mortification of Sin, because one thing John Owen said is, sin is not what we do, it's who we are. It's who we are. There's no getting around that. And David continually cries out to God. Psalm 6, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, neither chasten me in your 
hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also very terrified. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. you. In Sheol there is no uh, who shall give thanks. I am weary with my groaning all night. I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. He's broken over his sin. You know, yes, we're forgiven. But don't think for a moment that we can grow complacent in our spirituality. He says in verse 24, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He kind of understands that word deliver there is used to describe a soldier who ran to his comrade in the midst of battle to rescue him from the enemy. Who's going to do it? Interesting note when he says this body of death, the body of this death, um, John MacArthur brought up the fact that back in Paul's time, um, Tarsus, where Paul was born, there was a tribe that lived there. And when someone would murder someone, they would take the murdered body and they would face-to-face, they would strap it to the person who murdered it. And they would tie it tightly until eventually, after a period of days, that death of that dead body became crossed over. I mean, what a horrible way to die. Staring the person you murdered rot in front of your face. You can't do anything about it. That's what this is saying. Who's going to deliver us from this? And he gives the answer in verse 25, doesn't he? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? See, the the fact of the matter is, beloved, that we have been delivered from this. And that's where our praise and our thanks and our glory needs to be. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. In other words, with with this this new being. Man, I want to do what God wants me to do. But you know what? I'm still in this flesh. And I still serve the law of sin. Um, it's a continuum, continuum of conflict. And you know, I just want to leave you with these two little things. You know what, if you hate your sin and you struggle against it, that's great. It's good. You're in a good place to hate your sin and acknowledge the struggle. Um, if you don't have that, then, you know, if you don't have a hatred for sin and if there's no struggle, you just go live your life however, you're probably not a believer. You probably haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ. You haven't been transformed. You haven't been saved. And you need to understand that that sin, that burden of sin that you're carrying will not go away. You can't just shrug it off. You can't just do a bunch of works and finally God will say, ah, okay, that's good enough. No. There's only one way that it can be dealt with, and that's through the sacrifice of Christ. Because it's Christ who defeated sin and death. And so don't ever think that there's no hope for deliverance, because there is in Christ.
and we should be always thankful for that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this struggle of sin is something that you've brought to our attention, that Paul has brought to our attention over and over through this chapter 7 of Romans. And Lord, it's exciting to begin to look ahead into chapter 8, because good things happen. And Father, we pray that today, even though that as believers we do struggle with sin, it is a reality, that somehow that, you know, we walk out of here that eventually this next week we'll be faced with sin in our lives. And Lord, the Bible says that if we come to you and we confess our sin, that you are faithful and you're just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ, um, you're not in that place. You're in a place where God's anger and God's wrath is upon you because of your sin. And there's only one way out of that place, and that's through the sacrifice of Christ. So I pray that you would consider turning to Jesus, turning from your sin, acknowledging your sinfulness, crying out to God, saying, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I don't want to burn for all eternity in a place called hell. I would much rather... Spend it with you in a place called heaven and glory where we won't have to struggle with sin anymore. That option is there for you, but you have to cry out to him. So, Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would just bless our week and uh, bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.